You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So just as a reminder, as you guys are turning uh, there um, to got our hand out there, we're going to talk about the work of Christ tonight. Um, One thing that make sure that you know, so next week we will not have this class in here. Uh, we will be outside, hopefully in the parking lot, uh, having a baptism party. Okay, and so uh, that's going to be taking place. If it's too, uh, if it's raining or something kind of funny going on, we're going to make it in the gym. But we will have it one way or the other. And so, just as a reminder for anybody here tonight that uh, Jesus Christ is saving you, and you haven't followed through baptism. Make sure you tell us this week. We'd love to go ahead and prep for that uh, and walk with you. And make sure that that's a, a thing that you are ready to do and um, what a wonderful kind of uh, opportunity that we have uh, to celebrate that so next week we'll be either out in the parking lot or the gym at 6 30 in addition to that we're going to just have a time where um, we're going to have some refreshments and just some games and just don't rush off right you know I don't know what else you got planned but bring some folks with you bring some family there especially if you are getting baptized to be able to celebrate and to testify to that in front of people that you love. And so uh, what a wonderful thing. Tonight, we're going to talk about the work of Jesus Christ. And I would love to say that I'm such a good planner that in our systematic theology course that we would come up to the work of Christ about how he died upon the cross, was resurrected from the grave on the week that leads up to Easter. I wish I could tell you I was that good. But instead, I would just say, God's just that good. Okay, are we fair with that? So instead of my plans or whatnot, tonight we're going to get to this kind of the second half of Jesus' ministry and to look at what he did as uh, we walk through this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ provide the path for us to experience through life. In Christ's work, we find our salvation and purpose. And so as we've been going through the life of Christ, I want to talk about the manifestation of the Christ. And, and what I mean by that is when Jesus was on the earth, what did he do? What were the works that he accomplished? What were the things that he found himself doing that got people's attention? And one of the things that you must know is that some people follow Jesus simply um, for, uh, it says here, okay, no, it didn't, see, we're having technical issues, okay, Um, simply for the benefit of associating with him, okay, so that first blank there is um, some people follow Jesus simply for the benefit of associating with him. They had this kind of mentality that uh, they just wanted to be around where all the action was, if that makes sense. In John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, it says that many people were following Jesus, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Some, some translation, I'm trying to remember which one it is, but it says people were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. Wow. Isn't that a statement? Okay. We believe in what you're doing. He's like, yeah, but I believe you're just here based on what you get out of it. So he would move on from there and would not give himself to them. And so with this... Um, Many of the disciples showed a type of spiritual amnesia as they forgot previous works. What you see in the manifestation of the works that he would do is that the disciples would see things that Jesus would do, and then yet they would almost like they would forget about it when the next crisis came along. I want you to open up in the Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture to you. Um. Jesus has just heard that his cousin John has been beheaded and he wants to go and spend some time alone to pray and reflect. And as he gets there, there's a group of people that are waiting on him. And instead of him pushing off what they needed, he he decides he is going to spend some time with them and to encourage them. Now, Now look what happens in 
Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, your subheading probably says Jesus feeds the what? 5,000. Okay, verse 13. And when Jesus heard this, speaking of John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they looked at Jesus and goes, I don't see a drive-thru. Okay, we don't, there's not a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. What are we going to do here? They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the what? Grass. Why do you think they just said, like, why did he just sit down? Why do you think he said grass? Like, why is that? A, sometimes you have to look at the details and go, why is that an important detail? Mark said green grass. Like, okay, well, that's good. Well, there, again, where he's out in a desolate place where you kind of picture a wasteland, a desert, a wilderness, so to speak, where there may not be a whole lot of grass and whatnot. Why does Matthew think it's important? And instead of just saying he ordered the crowds to sit down, why do you think it's important? He says, order the crowds to sit down on the grass. I don't know, potentially because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This point, Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling in Psalm 23. Why don't y'all sit down? No, 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 don't sit down over there. Sit down in the grass. I'm going to let you sit down there and let you know that I can take care of your needs here. It says, uh, Here the crowds sit down in the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So that means this. He fed 5,000 who again? Men. Men. All right, fellas. I want you to think about the last time you ate and were satisfied. I know this. I had more than a couple little crumbs from a piece of bread. Okay, right? I had more than that. If you get a bunch of us guys in here and we decide we're going to eat and eat to the point where you're satisfied, which basically means this, loosen the belt, I'm hurting, I'm moaning as I'm walking out, right? Like that's what it means to, to eat and be satisfied, at least in my estimation here. This is not them just nibbling on a little something. This is that they, they are, they are chowing down, right? They're, they're getting after it. They're, they're eating here. And you would think that 5,000 men plus women and children, some conservative estimates say maybe 20,000 people ate that day. 20,000. And they even got leftovers, y'all. They got doggy bags. They got 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Right? How, how does that even happen? So you would think, right, at this moment, there's nothing that, I mean, in your mind, Jesus can do anything. There's nothing that's too hard for him. Next section of scripture, it says he walks on the water. He's going to heal the sick. I mean, this is incredible, right? And then you get down all the way to Matthew chapter 15, verse number 32, and you see another subheading. But instead of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it says Jesus feeds the what? 4,000. Now, let me just put this out here because I, I want to give... Um, just margin in this room that maybe some of you have never seen that written in your Bible. I remember when I, I was a college student before I ever saw that. I'd always heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. When I was, finally decided I was going to read through the Bible and I got to Jesus feeds the 4,000, I thought it was a typo. Well, he didn't feed the 5,000. I mean, he didn't feed the 4,000. He fed the 5,000. This, this must be a mistake here, right? There's something off here. So I, I read then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, 
Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a crowd? Now, hold on. Does anybody in that room want to, I don't know, take a guess where they might could find somebody who could do that? Do you guys not see this as shocking? Because it's going to go down, uh, if you go all the way down to, to the end, verse 38, it says those who ate were about 4,000 men besides the women and children. So let me ask you a question. So Jesus had just fed 5,000, and now they have 4,000, and they look at him going, where do you expect us to find all this food? And it make matters worse, first time, 5,000 people, but how many loaves did they have that time? Yep, they had, so when you think about it, they went through this. They had five loaves, two fish, first time. Second time, look what it says. He's telling them, where are we going to find enough bread? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And a few small fish. The way that I understand the word few to mean, it means more than two. Right? So you mean to tell me, last time they had more people, less resources. Now they have less people, more resources, and they look at Jesus and go, and where do you expect this to happen? Where in the world do you think we're going to feed all these people? That's called spiritual amnesia, folks, right? And I want to be critical. Like, How could you look at Jesus, who has done the miraculous with more people, less resources. Now you've got less people and more resources, and look at him going, how in the world are you going to do that? And I want to get mad at the disciples until I realize I do the same thing. Have you not seen God show up in your life before? Have you not seen him do the miraculous time and time again? You should have been dead 15 times. You're still here today. That time that you didn't know if this was going to happen, but God stepped through. And then all of a sudden, a new crisis comes up. Not even as severe as the crisis that you have walked through. And you look at Jesus going, what, 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 how's this going to happen, God? How can you take place? And I imagine Jesus, with, I'm, I'm thankful he's perfect. Because you know he's got to want to eye roll a couple times, right? When he's dealing with us. Here are these people seeing Jesus do the miraculous time and time again, and yet new set of crisis, and they're in disbelief. In disbelief, can he do it again? If you think about it, Jesus continued to point to his capability to do anything but call for the people's belief, right? He, he calls, so he continued to point to his capability. He can do anything, but he would call for the people's belief. Mark chapter 9 Somebody comes up to Jesus and says, my loved one is sick. If you can, heal them. And he says, if you can. <laughs> if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. The manifestation of the Christ was he was showing his ability to do the miraculous works of God. And yet they were not an end of themselves. They were a means to a greater end to have faith in the one who was doing them. So the manifestation is going forth. But then there's this invitation of the Christ going forth especially as it relates to there is a unique set of people that Jesus Christ was often criticized for how close he was to them. Because he invited people to follow him that were on the fringes, folks. Jesus lost a lot of religious friends because the people that he was close to were not the type of people that church folks ought to be hanging out with, right? The invitation went out not to the religious but to the rebellious. Jesus befriended sinners, but he never sinned himself. This is what's so unique about the invitation of Christ. And what he does is that he befriends sinners. He causes people that are very far away from God. And he begins to develop relationships with them. And yet, 
He never sins. Now, this is the issue that I want to just make sure you guys hear this. Because a lot of people have had a lot of downfall of following Jesus. Go, Jesus befriended sinners. I'm going to go befriend sinners. I'm going to the club with them too. All right. But can you go to the club and not be clubbing, right? That's the, that's the issue, okay? And, and Jesus would go to the club, but he wouldn't be clubbing himself. And, and this is the difference. A lot of people want to be, okay, I can be friend sinners, but do you have an intention to get them out of sin? Or do you want to enjoy and align yourself with them in their sin? That's the issue. Jesus befriended sinners, but he never sinned. He, he had no problem being around those that were completely far away from God, but that didn't mean he got far away from God in that process. Jesus showed great mercy to a few people throughout uh, Scripture. There's a lot that I could come up with, but let me give you a few here. One was uh, the woman caught in adultery, right? You remember her? Yep. Religious people found her in adultery. That seems suspect in of itself, does it not? We found her in the act of it. What were you doing there while she's in the act of it? What does that even mean, right? Uh, bring in front, hey, what, what does the law say? We should stone her. Jesus starts right in the ground. And he goes, yeah, first one without sin can surely throw that first stone. Come on, who wants it? And everybody stands back, he starts right. I cannot wait to find out what he wrote in that dirt that day. I just want to know so bad. Because then it says the oldest guy in the room, the oldest guy out there in the street left, and it went down from the oldest to the youngest. What in the world was happening there? Okay. He writes something down. This woman is coward in fear. She thinks she's about to be stoned. And he, he picks up her face and goes, Woman, where are your accusers? She says, They're gone. He goes, I don't condemn you either. Now, folks, he said the one without sin could cast the first stone. So who's the only one who could have picked up a stone that day? He did. He could have. He could have. He says, I don't condemn you either. He says, Go. And we go, Man, that's awesome. Jesus just befriended her and, and loved her and her sin. But don't miss the complete statement of what he said. He said, go and sin no more. Okay? This is where mercy and truth meet, folks. He meets us in the middle of our dysfunction, but does not enable us to continue there. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to reach you where you are. And all the mess, all the issues, all the stuff. I, I, I accept you. I love you. I'll embrace you. I'll forgive you. But I'm not calling you to stay in all that stuff. You got mercy now. Now, you walk out of this, right? So, caught in adultery, the tax collector in the tree. Y'all remember little Zacchaeus, right? Um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? Okay. Uh, some of y'all know this church song, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see, and as Jesus is walking by, he says, Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. Okay, right? It's just a good, good song. Um, some of y'all missed out on some VBS stuff, I can tell. Okay. Um, but, but here's this picture of a guy who is a scoundrel, um, taking money for the government, taking money from his countrymen, uh, taking some back for himself, and Jesus does not wait till he gets a clean bill of service before he reaches out to him. He goes, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house now. Come on down. Come on down. And Zacchaeus comes down and says, I'm going to repay everybody I stole. Jesus goes, that's great. I didn't ask you to do that. Why? Because mercy always precedes obedience. Always. Can't be obedience than mercy. It's got to be mercy than obedience. I, I want you, I want to come down to your house. I want to love you the way that you are. And he goes, I want to change. He's like, I'm sure that you do because this is the order, right? And we, we highlight old Zacchaeus for climbing up in that tree and think it's so wonderful. But the amazing thing about Zacchaeus was not the fact that Zacchaeus saw Jesus. It was the fact that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He's the one who called out and says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down. And we, we you know, rightfully commend Zacchaeus for climbing into the tree, but I've always in my mind thought, yeah, but who planted that tree there in the first place? 
Jesus had placed that tree there at the right that spot, so it'd be right at the age that all of a sudden when he would be walking down one day, Zacchaeus would have to climb up in it, and he placed it right there for that time so that he could get this picture of him. We could go on down. Uh, the woman of the city that he um, was, was gracious and merciful towards, the men he called his disciples were not people of noble character. It was just a, a remarkable, the invitation that he would bring people in. Jesus told the religious leaders, so shockingly that the tax collectors and prostitutes were closer to the kingdom of God than them. In Matthew 21, 31, he said something, a verse of scripture that most people do not memorize or try to encourage to their religious friends. But he looked at a group of people that were, um, by the way, the religious people he were looking at had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. That puts you in perspective, okay? Some of y'all are like, Pastor, I'm doing pretty good. I've memorized Genesis 1-1, you know, a few years ago. That's, I'm proud of you, right? But when you, when you memorize this chunk, chunk of scripture here and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you've memorized Leviticus? I'm not impressed by that. The prostitutes are closer to God than you are. Those are fighting words, right? How in the world could he say something so shocking? Because tax collectors and prostitutes knew they needed grace and the self-righteous thought that they'd earned it. That's why. They were closer to God because they understood and Jesus was calling as an invitation to bring these people close. Now on the other end, there's these two groups of people Jesus' ministry is categorized by. There's the sinner and there's the self-righteous, right? Sinner, he's inviting them to. The self-righteous, there's this exhortation that he hits and he hits at them hard. Uh, the religious leaders were not comfortable with the ministry of Jesus. From his ministry's beginnings, Jesus infuriated the religious leaders due to his claim to be God. Um, just so you know, um, for all the people who go, Jesus never claimed to be God. They've never read the Bible. Mark chapter 2, the paralytic is brought to Jesus. Four friends come in. Jesus says he saw their faith and he said to them, instead of pick up your pallet and go home, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees in the room said, what did you just say? He goes, oh, in case you're wondering if I have the authority to forgive sins, because I know you think only God can forgive sins, and I just said that I forgive his sins. You probably wondered if I have the authority to do that. To show you I have the authority to do that, watch this. Pick up your pallet and go home. Any other questions? The guy gets up. Now, when you claim to forgive sins, I, I don't know about you, I've never done that, right? I've never looked at anybody on death row and go, your sins are forgiven, right, okay? You are clean in the eyes of triumph, right, okay? Because you know what? That ain't going anywhere. That ain't going anywhere. He looks at them and says, uh, your sins are forgiven. John 8, 58 to 59, <laughs> okay? He looks at a group of people who say that they're of the Jewish faith, come from Father Abraham, and he says, you think you're somebody special and that you're going to heaven because you're sons of Abraham. Let me tell you something. God could raise up somebody from these rocks to be a son of Abraham. And in fact, he says, he says something so shocking that only by their response do we know how serious it is. Because in John 8, 58, he says, even before Abraham was, I am. Which doesn't sound like proper grammar, by the way, right? Because he wasn't intended it to be. Because in the Old Testament, there was a phrase that was designated to Yahweh, the one true God, I am who I am. And when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, right? Before Abraham, I was, no. Because they said, you're, you're only 30 years old. How can you even say this? You, you haven't been, you have never seen Father Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. And you know exactly what he did. You know why? Because all the religious leaders picked up stones ready to throw it at him. Because they thought he just claimed to be God. You know why? Because he did. Over and over, Jesus is very clear to these religious leaders about 
where he stands with them, and they know what he's saying, and yet they struggle with him. The Pharisees forsook the word due to their commitment to their traditions. The issue with the religious people was that they were missing the fact that God was in the flesh in front of them because they were so stuck in their traditions and their extra rules, let's tap again, that they did not know what to do with Jesus. So with these traditions, with these things that they continue to walk by, what they realize is that these Pharisees were not just following the word. You know what they were doing? They were following all their extra little commandments on the word. So like there'd be a rule that would say this, you need to honor and take care of your, your parents no matter how old they get. Well, all of a sudden, the Pharisees decided they were going to make a different rule that said, you know what, if you don't want to take care of your family, you can just dedicate that money to make sure it goes to the temple and you don't have to go to your parents. You know what that is? That's putting your traditions ahead of the commandments, right? That's putting somehow in your own thing. So they would take away from the word. It wasn't that they knew the word, but they put, follow this, their traditions, their expectations on the same level with the word, right? It's always a dangerous spot to be in. Um... The Pharisees were willing to work with the despicable Herodians, okay, due to their greater hatred of Jesus. This is how bad it got, Matthew chapter 22. Um, you may have never heard of the Herodians, but whose name do you see there? Herod. Herod, okay. Herod represents the Roman government. Do the Pharisees like the Roman government at this point? No. So why in the world would the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish law, work together with men who were the established Roman Empire? Why? Because even though they hated each other, they hated Jesus more. So at some point, this is what they do in, in Matthew 22. They try to trap him, right? Um, they weren't successful in it by any stretch of the imagination. This is um, Matthew chapter 22. Look again in verse 15. It says, And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. See that? Pharisees and Herodians together. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. That sounds like brown on your nose. Okay, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. They said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Why would they do that? Because the Pharisees said, if you tell us to pay taxes, all the Jewish people are going to be upset at you. If you say don't pay your taxes, all the Herodians are going to be upset at you. We got you cornered now. Either way, 50% of this crowd is going to come at you. He says, pick out a coin. Whose face do you see on it? Caesar? You can give to Caesar what's Caesar. And give to God what's God's. So Caesar's image is stamped upon that coin. We'll give that to him. And guess what? God's image is stamped upon you. You better give yourself to God. What he does in this moment, it says, here's this image stamped upon you, and you need to make sure what's going on here very carefully. And so they, they, got so they got so frustrated, they would literally work with the establishment, the government that they hated, because they just hated Jesus more. Jesus confronted the religious, and he comforted the rebellious. Isn't that interesting? Because I want to tell you what we often do. Quite the opposite. All right, church folk, let's be honest with you a second. Typically, we comfort the religious. Hey, look, you know, nobody's going to judge you. It's nobody's business anyway. Yeah, I'm sure you know you mean well, blah, blah, blah. And what do we do? We confront the rebellious. 
Folks, the world is going to act like the world because they don't know any different. It's the people of God who ought to know better. And so Jesus would go at the people who had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy and said, surely you have not missed the work of God in your life. He's, he, literally, God was here in the flesh with them, and yet, so he's calling out embodying these people who were rebellious, and yet pushing back against the religious, not because they were religious, but because in their religion they missed the person of Jesus. They, they could not see God in the flesh because of all their rules and expectations they had. Uh, Jesus taught that despite the clout of the Pharisees, their examples were leading people to hell. That's a pretty shocking statement of Matthew 23, 15. Are the woe to you, Pharisees? Woe to you out there uh, cleaning everything up on the outside? You bunch of whitewashed tombs is what you are. Look good on the outside, you dead on the inside. Uh, woe to you, you filter the gnat, you swallow a camel, you get so caught up in the fine points of the law that you miss the big things. Woe to you because you are asking people to follow you and making them a proselyte and you're making them a double the son of hell as you. That's serious words there. Um, the, the thought of the, the woe to you passages and how serious of a call it is, but the religious community was not prepared for what Jesus was presenting, especially in his final days. The dedication of the Christ as he gets to the end of his life. Where today, once again, this is um, where, where culture celebrates Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what some people call Passion Week. And during Passion Week, Jesus showed awareness of the coming conflict and yet was undeterred from his plan. Um, Jesus knew exactly what was happening and yet he was completely faithful to see it through to the end. In fact, some day someone came up to him and says, Hey, Pilate wants to see you, or Herod wants to see you. He goes, you go tell that fox I'll be there in about three days. <laughs> what do you want us to do? To the religious, I mean, the, the government leader who could have you killed if you want to? Yeah, tell him I'll be there in three days. I'll be, I'll be there when I say I'm, I'm ready. He wants to see you, though. Yeah, but it, three more days. Like, who says that? The, the Only the one who's calling his shot knows exactly where he's going, knows exactly the steps. Along the way, uh, Jesus gets to the place, if you remember, um, that he had gathered his disciples together, washes their feet, celebrates uh, the Lord's Supper with them, uh, tells them that somebody's going to betray him. They say, who's it going to be? Judas walks out, uh, and then he gathers three men to come along with him for a special trip, Peter, James, and John. And he goes to one of his favorite places to pray. And as Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, he apparently was experiencing something called, you ready for this? Hematidrosis, due to the extreme stress. Now, this is not a biblical word. This is not a Greek word of some sort that I'm taking out of the, the original language. But do you remember when it says that the disciples saw that Jesus was sweating something? Drops of blood. Okay? Now, uh, Peter, James, John, fishermen, 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 neither of these guys have been to what I call medical school, right? So I hear these guys in the middle of the night going, man, Jesus looks stressed out over there. As they keep going back to sleep, right? He says, they all stay up and pray with me. Yeah, we'll be right with you. They're out. They're over and over and over again. All right? And at some point, they look at Jesus. They go, man, it's almost like he's sweating drops of blood over there. It's weird. And they write it down. And hundreds of years later, medical science comes along and says, there's actually a medical condition called hematidrosis. That when the body is under such anguish that actually the blood vessels begin to burst and blood comes in the sweat stream. And when people sweat, instead of just water, it's actually blood coming out of their sweat pores. So 
this is a real condition that these fishermen had no idea about. They go, it's weird. It looks like sweat and blood. And they just run it out. And later, doctors said, that must have meant that he was under such great stress. Now there, what stress? What was the stress? What He knew the cross was coming, right? So it is Jesus concerned about the Roman whip? Is he concerned about the Jewish crowd? Is he concerned about it? I don't think that's what he was overwhelmed by. Because he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me. What cup? Is well, in the Bible, the cup was about the cup of God's wrath. What was Jesus stressed about? Jesus was never fearful of his opponents, but he knew what awaited him in the wrath of God. And that tension led to such a physical point in his own life where he was sweating drops of blood because he knew. In the same way that the ark was taking the pounding of the waves and the wind and the rain of God's wrath against Noah in these days, Jesus was going to stand in place and absorb the wrath of God that was rightfully coming for you and I. He knew. Can this cup pass from me? This cup, the cup of God's wrath, but not my will. But yours be done. Uh, Jesus was committed to God's will being done over his will being accomplished. First garden in the Bible. Not the garden of Gethsemane. It's called the garden of what? Eden. Eden. And in there, the first Adam says, not your will, but mine be done. At this garden of Gethsemane, this what scripture will call the second Adam says, not my will, but yours be done. What took place in the Garden of Eden is being reversed here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ is stepping into what Adam should have been able to do but could not do on his own strength. And Jesus steps in and says he is willing to go all the way. He is arrested. He's betrayed by Judas. Uh, no disciples uh, stick with him for long, right? Um, we see the level at which the disciples flee. They had to lie about and make up stuff because no one could say a negative word about Jesus other than the fact he was claiming to be God. And that would be negative if it wasn't true. But if it's true, then they are literally coming to the place where they're going to crucify him uh, because of what he is claiming to be, that he is claiming to be God. Now, you need to know this. When we say crucifixion, crucifixion is the actual... Um, event that takes place when someone would go to the cross. But even before Jesus got there, I think most of you know this, um, Jesus was beaten to the point of death by highly trained soldiers even before the crucifixion. Um, the level at which he was beaten was a little bit more severe just due to the public nature of this and the level of hatred that was there. Um, Jesus was beaten with something called 40 minus 1 lashes, if you've ever there's different ways of say cat of nine tails and whatnot. What happened was that a, a man would be um, strapped to a post. His, his back would be exposed and two soldiers, uh, one Roman soldier here, one Roman soldier there, would have cat of nine tails. It was a, a, a strap, a bunch of leather straps would come out from it. On the ends were um, rocks, glass, um, sharp objects, metal things that were in tune to when it would latch onto the back it would latch in, and when they pull it, shards of skin would come out. And so what happens is, is that they would set it up to a guy's here. And so one soldier here, as soon as it comes off, he's hit by the second one. One, two, 
3, and it gets to 39, and the reason they stop at 39 is typically a man would die at 40. He's lost so much blood, abused so bad, back's not even recognizable. They beat him to that level to where he's literally at the point of death and now say, pick up that cross. Which makes sense. Why? What do we see him doing on the way? Falling, passing out. He lost so much blood. He's literally at the point that he barely is hanging on even before he's been nailed to the cross. Um, and in this, for three years he's been telling his disciples this was coming. And yet he didn't run. He didn't budge. In fact, he kept going towards it. Um, this was seen from the very beginning. Jesus' death was prophesied in the following ways. Look at these passages of Scripture. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that's hundreds of years before the time of Christ, it says that they would be mourning for the whom they have pierced. As I mentioned this before, I believe, but when they said whom they have pierced, when Zechariah wrote that or when Psalms wrote that, and they talked about piercing, that was hundreds of years before crucifixion had ever been invented. It makes no sense when Zechariah writes this down. They're going to mourn for the one they pierced. They go, pierce what? Um, pierced hands. Psalm 22 literally says, the psalm where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Psalm 22, verse 1. If you go through this psalm, what you find is this. They pierced my hands and my feet. There are no broken bones, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's specific enough? <laughs> Hundreds of years before the time of Christ? Pierced hands and feet before crucifixion has ever been invented. No broken bones to identify himself with the Passover lamb. Most people would die on the cross because of asphyxiation. So the way it was designed was that there would be uh, spikes going through more likely your wrist than your hands because there's more meat there and with a bone less likely falling off. The Roman rule was this. If the person that you crucified fell off the cross, you take his place. So they made sure you're not coming off. So they would typically nail within the, um, uh, would go through the median nerve right here in your wrist. And you know that, you know when you hit your funny bone, it doesn't feel so funny, right? Uh, imagine that when you hit the median nerve, uh, doctors have said it, it's, it's like a feeling like that, but imagine somebody's got a set of pliers and bending that type of nerve. In fact, the word excruciating, mm -hmm. think about the word excruciating, sounds a lot like crucifixion. There was not a word that was really representative to know the type of pain that a crucifixion went out of. So excruciating literally means from the cross, out of the cross. So uh, spike in the wrist, spike in the feet. So your body is collapsed like this. And the only way you can breathe, your diaphragm's collapsed. You have to push up on the nail in your wrist and in your ankles just to get a deep breath. And every time you push up, guess what happens on not a sanded piece of lumber? It's just that rips open those scabs that are on your back from what they've done with the lashes. So him to get a breath of air is just literally causing severe pain. So... Most people would die from asphyxiation. The sun going down, you're going to break the bones. Why? Because they can't push up on their legs anymore. They get to Jesus, and they don't have to break his bones because he's already died because he's already lost so much blood. They believe he had a heart attack on the cross based on some of the things that he was saying that he could recognize what was going on and to fulfill the prophecy of the Passover lamb that no bones could be broken. Everybody else's bones were broken on the cross, not his. Um, cast lots for clothing. I'll give you this. Who's going to get this robe for him? I'll get this tunic. Let's see what happens. He literally meaning this. Pierce for our transgressions like Isaiah 53, 5 says. Get this. Zechariah eleven thirteen 13 says, 
30 pieces of silver for betrayal. Folks, how do you plan that? How do you plan that on the other side of town one of your best friends is going to betray you for 30 pieces of silver hundreds of years before it happens? Close friend sharing bread betrays me? Psalm 41 verse 9? Like, you can't make this stuff up. This is God from the beginning of time going, this is the way this is going to go down. And, and preparing the way for us. Jesus' seven recorded statements from the cross tell us much about his mindset. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are seven things we see that Jesus actually said while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to yell and go, yes, they did. Yes, we do. We know exactly what we were doing. And he goes, forgiveness. That's the message that's going from the cross. Number two, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's a dirty, rotten, sinner, scoundrel on a cross for crimes that he had committed, for murder, for thievery, you name it. He was there because he deserved to be. And Jesus said he was going to heaven and he never got to get baptized. He never joined a church. He never gave to offering. He never evangelized. He never went on a mission trip. He never read his Bible. And so help me if he's not in heaven, I got no chance of getting there myself. He's there today because Jesus Christ said he could get there. Right? I am there one day because Jesus Christ said I can come. Commandment, uh, 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 saying number three, behold your son, behold your mother. What is this moment? Jesus is on the cross. He sees his mother Mary down there. His uh, adopted father Joseph has died, and he looks at his best friend John the disciple and says, please take care of my mom while I'm gone. I'm going to be straight with you. That's a man right there. Carrying the sins of the world on his shoulder. And he still will make sure somebody's going to watch out for his mom while he's gone. Um, number four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Getting our attention to Psalm 22 to make sure we unpack that psalm and realize that he is uh, fulfilling all those prophecies. I thirst, John 19, 28. Why is that important? What does it show? At one point, they offer him sour wine. Did you know that? Oh, no, sorry, they, they, before the sour wine, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. You know what myrrh is? It's, it's like a bunch, a bunch of Tylenol, okay? It had knocked him out. One of the soldiers looks at him and how bad he is, and they go, goodness gracious, this is horrible. Just take some of this wine, man. You won't feel it as much. And Jesus refuses. No, uh-uh. Just take the wine. Just drink some. Goodness sake. Like you won't feel it as bad. You'll die, but you won't have to feel it. This is morphine, okay? And he refuses it. Why? He's not shrinking back from God's wrath. He's not, he's, he's not, he's not going to soften the blow. But then, later, and only later, he looks at him and says, I thirst. Why would he thirst? He's lost so much blood. He literally doesn't have his heart's pumping so hard. They believe his vocal cords are completely fried and just completely dry. And he needs some type of moisture. So he's got two more things he wants to say that the whole crowd can hear. And he goes, but give me some of that sour wine. This disgusting stuff that we clean stuff with, give me that. You refuse the stuff that make you feel better, but you want the sour stuff? Yes, give it to me. I thirst. He drinks it. So that he can say these final two things. It is finished. Folks, those are the three greatest words I've ever heard in my life. You know why? Our fight for God's approval is done. Our, our quest to try to earn our way to heaven, it's done. My past, it's done. My shame, all the regrets that I have, it is finished. Father, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And most people thought that as we will celebrate on Friday, a good Friday service to remember the cross of Jesus Christ, while the cross is obviously a rightful symbol of Christianity, the cross is a somber way to end if there is not an empty tomb. And the beauty of this, we will celebrate, uh, honestly, every day, but especially next Sunday, is the resurrection of the Christ. That God revealed Jesus' resurrection at sunrise on the first day of the week. On that Sunday where God had originally said, let there be light on the day when, of, of the week where light is coming forth is the moment where God brings light into the world again through Jesus' life. He revealed uh, at sunrise... Um, on the third day, God allowed women to be the first people to realize that the tomb was empty. At that time, a woman's voice was not credible in a court of law. And yet, this entire message of an empty tomb started with a bunch of women. Do not listen to this culture say that Christianity does not value women. Because if you wanted to start a movement, then start it with Peter, James, John, dudes, fellas. Guys, they go, nope, guys are back at the house. It was the women. They're the only ones there to make sure Jesus would prepare well, right? They start this, and so I say that to go, if people wanted to start Christianity on a lie, do not start it from a group of women, because their voices were never heard, not in that culture. And yet, they don't hide from it. In fact, these are the first evangelists running from the tomb, shouting out that Jesus was alive. As the women come in and eventually Peter and John come in, what's amazing is, is that you see two angels sit in pivotal positions in the empty tomb. John chapter 20 verse 12 uh, says it in an interesting way. It says that they went in to see where the body lay. Okay, I'll just give you an example here. This is kind of where Jesus was, was on a stone kind of tablet here. And when they walk into the room where Jesus should be laying there instead, they see an angel here. And they see an angel there. You go, why is that peculiar? Because there is a piece in uh, biblical artifacts that has a place where two angels are flanked upon the top of. The Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament where God's presence was to be experienced and God would come descend upon this spot right here and they called it the mercy seat where God would come down to forgive the sins of his people. And it's just, I don't think it's accident that John said, you know, we ran into the tomb. Guess what? There are two angels. And they were just kind of propped there. Like they're on the top of some kind of box, just sitting there, just waiting for us. Not standing, sitting there at both ends of it. Some of you clean freaks will also be happy to know that Jesus folded his laundry before he left. This is how in charge he is of this entire situation. And you also need to know this. The, the empty tomb is pivotal to our faith. Um... 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says this. If Christ has not been resurrected, we of all people must be pitied. Our hope is in vain. If, our, if, if Christianity is only based upon the cross, there is no power behind the cross. You follow? The empty tomb is just as critical. That's why that in our sanctuary, because when we were renovating that a few years ago, I said, I, I don't mind having a cross there, but I also want the empty tomb there. And so if you look at our baptistry and you see the cross on the back wall, it is 
very important, the arch at which that is cut out in and what is on the back side of that cross is appended to is a bunch of rock, a bunch of stone. That it's basically, yes, it's the cross, but yes, it's also the opening of the empty tomb to say, there is no salvation without the cross, but there is no salvation without the empty tomb either. Uh, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus resurrected, it changes absolutely everything about us. Um, I think what's so beautiful is that when you look at Matthew chapter 28, I'll just read this. I want, if you're close there, you can turn. But in Matthew 28, verse 7, um, oh, just read the whole paragraph. I know we got to go. Okay. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his who? Disciples. Go tell his disciples, go tell his students, go tell his learners, go tell his guys that work with him that he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Now remember what the angel said? Y'all need to go run and tell his disciples. Go tell his disciples. But look what happens here. See if you catch it. Oh, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. The angel said, Go and tell what? Angels wanted to inform the disciples, but Jesus called them brothers. I don't know why. That fires me up, y'all. Angels go, Go and tell the disciples that Jesus has gotten back. Jesus goes, No, no, no. They're more than disciples. They're my brothers. They're family. You go tell my family I've risen from grave i'm alive today so they run out of there completely changed and wild the establishment of the religious community and also the government began a rumor that jesus body was stolen to calm the city down matthew chapter 28 verses 11 through 15 the soldiers who went in who should have been crucified themselves because of this ordeal they were paid to say tell them that the disciples stole your body oh so a group of scared fishermen took out trained soldiers in the middle of the night and stole the body and rolled away the, the stone before anybody could see it. And the body was also taken away somewhere, and they buried it because, you know, they, they wanted to keep the gig up that, you know, Jesus was alive from the grave. And all of them were so run off that all 11 of them died separately from one another, and all 11 of them had the opportunity to recant or say that they stole the body and they hid it somewhere, that they buried it six paces past this tree, 10 feet down, and it, not one of them on their deathbed would say, we beat up the guards, we stole the body, oh, this is a gig. You know why? Because Jesus is alive. They would go to their death. Uh, because they, they would not die for a lie, but they would die for the truth. And as we finish the commission of the Christ, as Jesus is resurrecting, uh, after he is resurrected, he spends time on the earth, despite all that the disciples have experienced over these 40 days, some were still unsure regarding Jesus. This is remarkable to me. Matthew twenty-eight seventeen it says that he's on a hill, he's been with them for 40 days, popping in and out of buildings, talking with them, seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happen. And it says some were worshiping, but some were doubting. How do you doubt? <laughs> he's, he's right there, right? And yet the Bible doesn't hide it. Some of them are like, I'm not sure. Are we all hallucinating? Is it something we've eaten? Like, what, what is going on here? In this moment, as he ascends to the Father, Jesus has all authority, and therefore we should not fear to go in his name. 
He says, a lot of times in the Great Commission, we skip over verse 18. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission declares or clarifies our work. Jesus says in this passage, go into all nations, not some of the nations, folks. He says, go into all of them. Why? Because all the nations need to know that Jesus Christ has come for them. He says, make disciples, not converts. He does not say, go into all the world and make converts who believe in my name. He says, make disciples who are continuing to learn and grow and develop. That's why many of us struggled at some point in our life because we got converted, but we never got discipled. He says, you've got to keep growing. You've got to keep moving. You can't stay stagnant. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why baptizing? Can't hide this thing. Can't hide it. I want to say about this morning. Uh, talk with somebody after one of the services who said, I'm getting baptized. I'm getting off work on Sunday. I don't, I, I am. And then some people have said to me, like, what's so important about baptism? Because it's telling people, I'm not ashamed that I belong to Jesus, right? You know what the biggest deal is for so many of us? We've tried to keep it hidden. And guess what? That's not association with Jesus. It says to teach them all things, not teach them some things. Folks, we want to know the truth. We want to teach them all and he promised that he would be with us always. You know why, what that means? You and I don't have to ask for what he's already promised. God, I want you to be with me today. He's already promised he's going to be, right? Jesus is always with us. The reality is this, that sometimes we're not aware of it. So as we go this week, um, folks, there are people of which the Great Commission is calling you to reach. Uh, we'll be in this nation this week. And there are people who need to be discipled, they need to be baptized, they need to be taught all things. And we, as we go, we are promised this, that Jesus Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so for that, King Jesus, tonight as we conclude uh, this opportunity just to study who you are and what you've done, uh, help us remember tonight, Lord, that uh, you did not reject, neglect, ignore, skip away from the cross because of your great love for us. You came on a mission for the cross. It was not plan B. It was not a surprise. You knew exactly what you were getting into, and you came anyway. You knew all about my sin, and yet you still went to the cross anyway. And not only did you die upon the cross, but you defeated my greatest enemies. On that Sunday morning when you rose from the grave, you defeated sin, you defeated death, you defeated the powers of hell, you defeated my own sinful condition. You rose victorious at Prove that not only do you have power to forgive sins, but you have power to give life. And you have called and gone to heaven and have given us the great commission and promised that you are coming back one day. And we want to prepare this world so as many as we possibly can bring with us. That if Jesus Christ can save us and forgive us and change us, there is nobody too far gone in this world that he cannot as well. And so, Jesus, for that I pray that we will go this week that we will as a church see a great harvest this week of people whose lives are transformed by the gospel. And next Sunday night, we will baptize until our arms are sore as we will see people being changed by your gospel that will go out and make more disciples as we go forward. It's the name of Jesus Christ we pray and all God's people said, Amen. thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.